Today we begin a new series. Actually, a series we introduced the last three weeks. So we're actually going to get into the book of Ephesians today. So if you have a Bible, you can open up and get ready for the first chapter there. My wife and I love to watch the the home shows where they, they, they take a home and they gut it and they flip it out, rebuild it, sometimes knock out walls, expand the floor plan, add a room here or there, and they just make it look beautiful. And, and our favorite one, I think, is, is the one with Chip and Joanne Gaines called The Fixer Upper. And Joanne has this unique ability to look at old things and repurpose them in the house to be used for something good. So the, the episode the other day showed them taking this old shack stripping the wood off of it, refinishing the wood, and then reusing the wood as the, the ceiling in the bedroom so they would have some history with this building. And it made me think of how God repurposes lives. Sometimes we think that we're broken, we're damaged, we're faulty, we've blown it, things have happened to us, and God can't use us. But I really believe that God takes all of our lives, and he guts them out, and he fills them with beautiful things and repurposes them for his glory. And we're going to see that in the, in the book of Ephesians as we go through, that, that God is remaking us as new people in Christ. Now, if you've never read through the book of Ephesians, it's an incredible book. It is a book that is so full of great truths. It's, it's considered one of the classic books of the Bible. And there are, um, there's, there's kind of a neat division within this letter that Paul wrote. There's six chapters. The first three chapters really focus on doctrine, like the things that we believe. And the last three chapters focus on our duties, how we live it out. The first half is about being in Christ. And then the last half is about what it looks like when Christ is in us. So it's, it's, it's got these themes all through the book. But I think that the three most important themes are these. And we'll talk about them as we go through this series again and again and again. Because it all begins with, first of all, it's about what God did for us through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the core things that we believe about Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. And that's where our spiritual journey begins, not with what we've done for him, but what he's done for us. And once we understand what he's done for us, we understand who we are. And a lot of us struggle with that, this identity issue. I don't know who I am. And we listen to the people around us. We listen to friends. We, we look in the mirror and, and we get despondent sometimes about who we think we are or who people say we are. But you and I need to take our cues from God. If God loved us so much that he sent his only son, his precious son, into the world to save us, that speaks pretty highly of what he thinks of us. And so our identity, and we'll unfold that in the weeks to come, is based on on who he says we are. And then once we understand who we are, who we're becoming, then we know what to do because we don't really know what to do unless we know who we are. And because of this, because of this is who I am, I know this is how I should live. And so they all flow together because it all goes back to, I've got to know what's been done for me to know who I am. I've got to know who I am to know what to do. And Ephesians answered that. It's a a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago, but I'm telling you, it speaks in contemporary language. It speaks to our hearts today. That's one of the things I love about the Bible is it's an old book. It's a very old book that speaks about issues that people have dealt with in every culture, in every generation. The needs of people don't change. Culture changes, technology changes, some of the issues we deal with changes, but the basic needs of mankind don't change. You know something else that doesn't change? God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he did for people in Bible times, he continues to do today. So some of you are very into the Bible, some of you aren't. And sometimes you're intimidated by it. Maybe you've got a version of the Bible that's difficult to understand. Maybe no one's ever taken time to teach you. 
We are going to go through this book very slowly over the next three, four, five months. It may take us quite a while. But here's what I want you to do. This book is like an ocean. And you can, you can stand along the shore and kind of put your toes in the shallow waters if you want. That's okay. If that's where you are, that's okay. Get the toes in. And some of you are, some of you are ready to go in and, and where your feet don't even touch bottom. You're going to start swimming. You're going to be, you're going to be dealing with things that are big because Ephesians deals with big truths like predestination, adoption, election, um, the mission of the church, the mystery of God, some things that you go, wow, I, I don't even know about that stuff. And you may be intimidated by things that are doctrinal. Doctrine is simply the truths of God's word. And I studied that in seminary. That, that wasn't boring or dry at all. Actually, it was life-giving. Doctrine fuels your spiritual life. When you understand what Christ has done on the cross for you, you explode with worship. When you understand the depth of God's love, the breadth of his love for all of us, it motivates you to want to love other people. And so doctrine is critical for fueling your Christian life. If you feel like I'm not growing and, you know, I'm kind of stagnant, I feel shallow, um, then then spend some time soaking in the deep truths of God because it'll spur you onto great growth. But here's something that you need to know about God's word. It only speaks to those whose hearts are open. Jesus said that his word is like um, seed that's scattered on various soils. And some lands on hard soil, never penetrates it. And the birds come and eat the seed. Some falls on shallow soil where it grows up quickly and then dies. And some gr- grows in thorny soil that's, that's very divided. It's got a lot of other things growing in there and it gets choked out. But Jesus said that the seed that sows on, that's sown on the good soil penetrates the soil. The soil holds it grabs onto it, perseveres in it, and it produces a great crop. And what Jesus was talking about wasn't dirt. He was talking about your heart. And if your heart is hard, if you approach God's word saying, God, prove it to me, I'm not open to it, you're gonna have to convince me, it's probably just gonna sit there on the surface and be snatched away and you'll forget about it. But if you open your heart, and I, and I believe you do that through prayer, the scripture says, humbly receive the word implanted in you. Humbly. Say, God, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know how to live. I don't know where to go. But I want to hear from you. I want to hear your voice through the scriptures. And I want to do what you tell me to do. And if you approach it like that, whether it's Sunday morning church, whether it's a small group Bible study, whether it's your personal quiet time, if you approach God's word like this, and I'm telling you from personal experience, if I don't open my heart, I don't get much out of it. And if I pause and say, God, plant it deep. Plant this stuff deep within me. Over and over again, God is faithful. And that seed produces fruit. And I want this to produce fruit. We don't want to waste your time this morning. Uh, this, this is life-giving. We're living in a culture that is starving for something eternal. And God's blessed us with this book that speaks his truth to us today. And so I'm going to ask you to do this. I want to, I want to pray and open up our hearts with the soil. But I also want to do this. Some of you have come today with other things burdening you. Some of you I know have relatives in Florida, and they're getting braced for things today, and that's occupying your mind. I want to take those things. Some of you are wrapped up in your football team today, and that's just in your head. Let's, let's, let's put things in their proper place and open ourselves to hear God's word. Would you do that with me? Father, we pause right now. Would you speak to us now through your word? Would you open our hearts to your truth, Lord, that we would hear from it? Lord, we set aside those fears, those worries, those concerns that we have for loved ones Lord, our worry doesn't do anything good, but our prayers do good. Redirect the storms. Keep those safe. May all eyes be drawn to you. May hearts be open to you this day, Father. 
Help us, Lord, to have our priorities in the right place. May what we focus on right now is you, what you have to say, because you have a fresh word for us today. Speak it through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we be willing to do what you ask us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Ephesians, we're, we're going we're to actually do the whole first two verses today, okay? Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes in letters, we want to skip over the introduction, get to the meat, but this is meat. These aren't random words just kind of flipped out there by Paul to to get on to what he wants to say. He's actually setting the tone for the letter. He's saying some things that are, are very profound. And what I found in just meditating on this passage is here we have two groups of people, actually a person and a group of people, Paul and the Ephesians, who are so opposite. I mean, I don't think you can get further apart than these. You have a man who was very religious, grew up in the church, the, the Old Testament church. He grew up going to synagogue. He grew up hearing the scriptures, grew up memorizing the scriptures. And then you have these people over here who are wild, who don't, don't go to church, don't know the Bible, who've been involved in some very worldly things. And yet, somehow, these two have so much in common. And basically, same things you and I have in common with them. And that's what we want to find out today. What was going on in their lives? Even though they they came from different backgrounds, they discovered this, that if they embraced Jesus, they embraced God's will for their lives. And things became new. Things opened up. Things became beautiful. And you, no matter where you've been, what you've done, what's been done to you in your past, have a beautiful future in Christ. So let's, let's look at things the way Paul looked at it. The past. What's your perspective of the past? Paul's point of view was it was a platform, not a prison. His past was not something that prohibited him from moving forward. It was something he would stand on in order to glorify Christ. He was in prison. Uh, you can read about it at the end of Rome, at the end of book of Acts. He's in house arrest in Rome. And while he's there, he considered himself a prisoner of the Lord. In fact, in Ephesians 4.1, that's how he identifies himself. Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. So I may be a prisoner of Rome, but I am captive to Jesus Christ. And my life belongs to him. And even though I'm in a prison, my ministry hasn't stopped. Some of us would feel like, God, why am I in prison? How can I do your will? Paul said, I'm going to write letters to churches that might be read for the rest of the time. And so he writes the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Philippians, a letter to a man named Philemon, and they are included in our Bible. They're from the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God, which means that was not my plan. That wasn't my plan. I had my will, which is very different from God's will. And we are, we are much the same. We have a will for our lives, And when we follow that will, we end up breaking things, hurting things, screwing things up. And God comes along and says, you know, I have a will for you. And a great and perfect will. If you'd get on my plan, you would be blessed. And so Paul, who was actually born as a child named Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. If you know Old Testament history, the very first king of Israel was a man named Saul. So Saul was named after the king of Israel, the first king, named Saul. He grew up learning the scriptures. He studied under a rabbi named Gamaliel. He was going to be one of the most knowledgeable men of his day. He was rising fast in the ranks of what were called the Pharisees. We look at Pharisees 
as hypocrites. But that's not originally what they were. They originally were people with a good heart that wanted to know the scriptures and preserve the ancient faith of Israel. They were into the traditions, the rituals, and they wanted to preserve them. But they went overboard and they became very legalistic. But Paul was rising up in this kind of religious mindset. And then he hears of this message of a man named Jesus who apparently rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven, and people are now converting from Judaism to this faith in Jesus. And he wants nothing to do with it. In fact, he wants to squash it out. So you can read in Acts chapter 6 where um, a man named Stephen comes along. And Stephen is a, is a follower of Jesus. And we learn in the seventh chapter that he's arrested. And then he is executed by stoning. Men accuse him of false things, and they take rocks, and they just pummel him to death. But before they did that, it says they took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. It was as if Saul was the one with his arms folded watching over the execution with the power to stop it, but didn't. And so in the eighth chapter of of Acts, it starts with this verse, and Saul approved of their killing him. See, Paul wanted to squash out this movement. And just a couple of verses later in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Paul, or Saul was on this mission to stop the church. But do you know what happened? God had always wanted the disciples to go into Judea and Samaria, just, but they wouldn't. They stayed in Jerusalem. So it was the persecution that broke out that actually pushed believers to other areas. They, they left Jerusalem And they ended up in Judea and Samaria and other places. And guess what they took with them? The message of Jesus. And so it says, great numbers of men and women heard the message, believed in the Lord, and were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. It's as if uh, Saul was stomping on the fire and sparks were flying in other places and starting fires all around the region, which infuriated him even more. So then we go on to the ninth chapter of Acts, the first couple verses. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked of letters from the synagogue to Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that was the name of the, the Christian movement back then, whether, uh, whether they be men or women, he might take them um, and uh, imprison them in Jerusalem. And so we have uh, Saul who's on this mission to Damascus. And while he's on this journey, his life changes. He's in, he meets Christ. Now he hears this voice and, and, he, and he goes blind and this voice speaks to him and says, I am Jesus who, are you, who you are persecuting. Remember he was out to destroy the church? Do you know what the church is? It is the body of Christ. So, so the Jesus says, why are you attacking me? Why are you attacking me? He goes, I'm not attacking you. He goes, yes, you are. You're going after my church. Don't ever attack his church. That's his body. That's his bride. And so Saul is in blindness, thinking about this. And then a man named Ananias comes and tells him God's message. Saul, God has chosen you to be his instrument, to go to the Gentiles and to preach the message of salvation to them. So Ananias baptizes him. It says something like scales fell from his eyes. He began to see again. And for the rest of his life, he devoted himself to this message about Jesus. It's so beautiful. The man who was the biggest persecutor of the church became the biggest promoter of the church. Planted churches all across Asia Minor and other areas. See, his past was not his prison. Now Paul, or excuse me, Saul looked at himself 
in a way that we don't look at him. See, somewhere along the way, he shifts from being called Saul to Paul. I always wondered that. Wondered why he changed his name. Did, did God change the name? It doesn't say that anywhere. Well, most likely, this is what happened. Jewish people that, that were surrounded in a Greek culture often had two names, a Jewish name and a Greek name. So when Jesus picked a young disciple named Matthew, a tax collector, you might know that Matthew actually had another name. You wear his jeans. Yeah, <laughs> Levi. Levi. Levi is, is one of the tribes of Israel. That was his Jewish name. Matthew was his Greek name. And when you're in a Greek culture, you probably use your Greek name. Saul, who is, who is going into a Greek culture to reach Gentiles, very probably said, you know what, I probably ought to go by my Greek name, Paul. So he would have credibility with the people he was going to speak to. Now, what's so interesting is the name Paulus means small. And I wonder if in his mind... He said, I don't want to be identified with the king of Israel. I'd rather be someone that's small. So just call me Small Paul. Small Paul. See, because he didn't have a big view of himself. We look, at, we look at Paul and go, wow, the greatest apostle that ever lived, one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. And, and I bet if you encountered him today, he would say, no, I, I don't see myself that way. But listen to what he says about himself in Ephesians 3.8. This is what he tells the Ephesian church. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, his grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. You see the humility in there? He not only, get this, he didn't say I'm the least of God's people. Did you see what that says? I'm less than the least. I'm at the very bottom. Of anybody who gets into God's kingdom, I'm at the back of the line. I'm way back there. I don't deserve even to be in the line except for the grace of Christ. He is so humbled by that. It amazes me when people think Paul was some arrogant guy, male chauvinist, because when I read about him, he seems so humble. I'm less than the least. He reminds me of John the Baptist. And some of you might remember the old wristband we have that has some of the symbols on it. It's taken from John the Baptist that I must become less He must become greater, I must become less. And that was Paul's attitude. I must become less. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. An apostle means one who is sent. It's like a messenger, an ambassador. Someone who's representing a higher authority goes and delivers a message. That's what Paul was to do. And there are capital A apostles and small a apostles. Capital A are the ones that were chosen by Jesus empowered with the ability to do miracles. They laid the foundation of the church. Now, there were 12 original ones. Then, then Judas bailed out. The disciples decided to put another guy in his place. They, they drew straws, picked Matthias. I don't even know if that was God's will because it almost seems like God said, you know what, nice try, but I had someone better in mind, Paul. And Paul spent private time with Jesus and was given the ability to perform miracles. Now, there are other people, small-a apostles, that are in the scripture, like Barnabas and Silas and some others, also messengers who were sent, but they're not part of the core group of apostles. Now, now even among the apostles, though, Paul says this about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. 
Paul says, I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I attacked the body of Christ. I I didn't even deserve to be doing what I'm doing. But, But you need to know this. His past wasn't his prison. God didn't say, oh, because you did that, you could never serve me. No, your stains are too dark. He says, Paul, I'll, I'll, lose you. I'll use you. You'll be a great example of grace. In fact, your zeal for God, it was misdirected. I'm going to direct it in the right way. Your knowledge of scriptures, that's going to come in really handy when you're, when you're dealing with people from pagan backgrounds or the Jewish leaders. I'm going to use that for my glory. And God used it as a platform for his ministry. What is God's will for you? I had a will for my life. I wanted to be a computer programmer or maybe a high school teacher, but God had another plan. He called me to be a pastor. I can guarantee you that was not my will, heading off to college. But, you know, God worked out things, and I heard a voice calling me that direction. God has a will for your life. More than likely, it's not to be a pastor, not to be a missionary, but it's to be an instrument in his hands that he can use for his glory. And you need to surrender yourself to him, to allow him. Regardless of what your past is, that doesn't disqualify you. Sometimes it uniquely fits you for what he's preparing you to do. Your skills, your knowledge, your experiences, even the painful ones, God says, you are going to be able to relate to people that others can't relate to. Because you've gone through that. You've gone through divorce. You've gone through drug addiction. You've gone through hardship. You've gone through the death of a spouse. You've gone through these painful things. But you know what, God? God can now use you. That will become a platform for your ministry. Your past is not your prison. It's a platform. So then we look at this other group of people that he's writing to, very different from Paul. (laughs) Very, very different from Paul. And here's how he speaks of them. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. I mean, I wonder how they receive that. Because remember the last three weeks as we looked at these people into sorcery, witchcraft, magic, idolatry, Paul, Paul describes these people in Ephesians. All through that book, he'll use words like, you know, you, the old life, you were, you were disobedient. You were cut off from God. You were living in darkness. You, you were living in, in insensitivity to the Lord. You were hard-hearted. You indulged in every kind of impurity. But that was the past. Now you're God's holy people. Why? Because God repurposed them. God repurposed them. And, all be, and it was all because of a change of position. Change of position. They were now in Christ. They were set apart from something, and they were set apart for something. That really is what the word holy means. When he calls them holy ones, some of your Bibles say the word saints to the saints in Ephesus. We don't like the word saints a lot today because it almost feels like we're boasting, like, I'm a saint. No, you're not. You don't live like a saint. I'm not perfect, so a saint's perfect. The Catholic Church Elevate saints to a really high level. Only a special person can become a saint, right? In the Catholic Church, you've got to be nominated five years after your death or beyond to be a saint. They investigate your life and your doctrine to make sure you're of the highest caliber. And then you have to, you have, to have proof. There has to be verifiable proof, scientific proof, that there has been an, a miracle performed when someone's called on your name. And then you get to the stage where it's called a beatification. You, you become the blessed saint, whoever it is. But, but you become canonized 
recognized by the Pope before the whole church when you do a second miracle. And that elevates you now to this unique status. And so, so we have all kinds of saints within the Catholicism, even patron saints, which means there are certain saints that if you have a problem in a certain area, like cancer, you call on that saint. If you have a lost item, you call on that saint. You want to sell a house, you call on that saint. They, they specialize in certain prayers. But we believe we don't have to go through a saint to have favor with God. We go through Jesus to have favor with God. And we don't believe that a select group of people get to be called saints. Every single believer is a saint. If you are a believer, you're a saint. You you cannot be a saint unless you're a believer, and you cannot be a believer without being called a saint. They are the holy ones that he's referring to. You don't have to perform a miracle to be a saint. You just have to experience a miracle, and that miracle being the change of your own heart. And if you've done that, you are a saint. Now, the basic meaning of the word holy Holy ones, the holy means to be set apart, to be set apart, to be set apart for something and to be set apart from something. And we see that the very first time the word is used. It's used in the week of creation when when God makes this day number seven. In Genesis 2, 3, it says God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He made it holy, meaning he didn't make it perfect. Every day was perfect. What What was different about this day? It was a day of rest. It was a day different from the other six days. It was a day set apart from all the others. All these other days, you do your work, do your labor, you know, work hard. On this day, you rest and watch football. (laughs) Right? No. On this day, you rest, and it may include watching football, but it really, really means get restored, get refreshed in relationships, relationships with your family, with others, with God. This is a day that's different from all the other days. That's what the word holy means. Israel was a holy nation, a holy people, meaning meaning they weren't better than other people. In fact, God says, you are better than all the others. You're holy because I chose you to belong to me. You're different. You're different than everybody else because you're mine. That's the word holy. Uh, the, The temple had a holy place where sacrifices were offered. Um, God, God says, my name is to be holy, is to be set apart in, in your vocabulary. That's why we don't cuss. Do you know what the word profane means? It doesn't mean to, to, to use those four-letter words. That's not, that's not what it means to profane. Profane means to make common. Profanity is making something holy common, making something sacred every day. When you use the name of God or the name of Jesus as just a casual expression like OMG, You're taking something holy and making it common. That's profanity in God's eyes. That's worse than the four-letter words, to be honest. Profaning the name of God, it is a holy name. There is no other name like the name of our God. There is no name on earth like Jesus. It is special. It is sacred. It is holy. My Bible says, holy Bible is different from every other book on this planet. Because God speaks through this book. So that's the meaning. It's separate. It's, it's different. It's unique. It's set aside. That's the meaning of the word holy. So Ephesians chapter 2 reminds the Ephesian people what they used to be. Listen to verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised... Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants and the promise without hope and without God in the world. That's who you used to be. 
But now, you are chosen. You are holy. You are set apart. You belong to God. Can you imagine how these people must have felt? Because, again, they didn't grow up going to church like, like a lot of us did. They didn't grow up going to church. They grew up worshiping Artemis, Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. They grew up uh, having sex with temple prostitutes. They grew up practicing magic and sorcery. They did all kinds of things. And then Paul says to them, Oh, holy ones. And not only here, but nine times in this letter, he identifies himself so we'd never forget that in God's eyes, they now belonged. They now were holy. Their past was not a prison. They were set apart. Set apart from sin, set apart from the flow of the world, set apart from something, and set apart for something, meaning now they had a new purpose to live for God. When I think of holy, I think of the, a certain set of dishes we have in our house. They're in a cabinet in the dining area, and if you open up that cabinet, you find out we, they rarely get used. They get used at Thanksgiving, Christmas, special meals. We don't eat pizza on those plates. We don't, we don't put dog food in the bowls. We don't drink, drink soda pop in the, in the goblets. You know, these are, these are holy dishes. Set apart from all the others. They're in a special place. They're set apart from something, and they're set apart for something, a special purpose. That's what it means to be holy. We are set apart from the world, from our past, from our sins, and we're set apart to be used by God as his instruments for his purposes. And when you are holy, it changes how you live. 1 Peter 1.15 actually gives the other angle of holiness. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Holiness is, is a lifestyle that's different, that's set apart from the way everybody else lives. So these Ephesians, when Paul identifies them in their lifestyle, he says, the faithful in Christ Jesus. They are full of faith. They don't respond with worry and panic and greed. They respond with faith. And that is so critical in a time like today when, when the world panics and the world's in a frenzy to say, I believe God's at work. I believe God is doing something. I, I'm, I'm one of those holy ones who are full of faith because I believe God is at work. Paul and the Ephesians had very different backgrounds they came from, but they both experienced holiness because they came through the same process, the process every person goes through who wants to have their life changed and repurposed. Process begins with grace and results in peace. Paul says it here in in his greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it seems like those are just flippant words, grace and peace, but but... They are so significant that Paul actually begins every single letter he writes. Every single New Testament letter has the greeting of grace and peace. He chose those for a reason because there are probably no two better words that describe the Christian experience than grace and peace. It begins with grace. Grace is God's kindness to undeserving sinners. When you receive mercy, it means you don't get what you have coming to you. You don't get the punishment for the actions you did. That's mercy. Okay, I'm going to withhold punishment. That's mercy. Grace goes a step beyond mercy. Grace says, not only are you not going to get what you had coming to you, you're going to get what you didn't have coming to you. Meaning, not only are you not going to get the bad that you should get, you're going to get the good that you don't even deserve. That's grace. It's like a police officer pulling you over on the side of the road and you're going 20 miles over the speed limit and says, okay, you're going to get a ticket and you're getting all braced for the bad news. He goes, a ticket to the Broncos game. (laughs) And you go, what? Because this is grace. Really, that's what grace is. 
We deserve, we deserve hell for our sins. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive. I'm not going to punish you for those sins because you've accepted my son. And I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to come and live inside of you through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you all kinds of blessings that come in the relationship with me. That's grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, we are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that nobody can boast. You can't boast about grace because you didn't do anything to get it. And Paul's so emphatic with this word, grace, that every single letter he writes, except for one, there's one book it doesn't end with, but every other book, all but one, end with a statement about grace, a reminder. It's as if Paul's saying, you start with grace, you end with grace, it's grace from beginning all the way to the end. And that's important because I've met Christians who feel like, you know, I accepted Christ at the beginning through grace, but I sure have to work hard to, to, to keep the faith and prove to God that I'm worthy. You are never worthy. You're never worthy. You're never going to be good enough. Quit trying to impress God. Accept grace. Lean on the grace all through life because when you do, the result will be peace. The result will be peace, which is really what we're all looking for. There's nothing quite like peace of heart. It is so awesome. Peace is very similar to the Old Testament word shalom. It, it means with that, that which is torn apart, that which is broken, is bound back together. And there's harmony, and there is serenity, and there is even prosperity. It starts with your relationship with God. Because of Christ and his grace, we have peace with God. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that's the grace part, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're struggling with disruptions in your life, turmoil in your life, God has peace available to you. I love this little statement. I didn't make this up, but someone said once, no grace, no peace. If you know grace, you'll know peace. And grace is found in Jesus Christ, which is really the common thread through all this. Do you notice in these two verses, Paul can't hardly get a sentence out without mentioning Jesus Christ three times. Every time, every time he says something, it's about Jesus Christ, Jesus this, Jesus that. He never, he never calls believers Christians, but he does call them this. In fact, 27 times in his letter to the Ephesians, he reminds them that they are in Christ. In Christ. That's what makes all the difference. Earlier this year, uh, USA Today came out with a report that one of the top five places to live in all of the United States is Colorado Springs. And I love, Julie and I were just talking, 22 years in Colorado Springs. We, we love being in Colorado Springs. But I'll tell you, it does not compare to being in Christ. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're in Colorado Springs or Ephesus or Miami, Florida or Houston, Texas or anywhere else in this world. Because if you're in Christ, you are bound with him like a branch to a tree, like a part of the body connected. You are one with Christ. The Bible even says so much that, that we were buried with him. We were raised with him. We reign with him. We have victory with him. You are united with Christ in some powerful, mystical way. Yes, you live in a physical world. But you, you have a relationship that takes you into another dimension, the spiritual dimension he calls the heavenlies. It's not heaven. It's the spiritual realm that's all around us. That's the heavenlies. We now, we now recognize the fact that I'm not a physical being that just happens to have a spiritual experience. I'm a spiritual being now having a human experience. And it all floods into our lives when you make that one big step. 
being in Christ. Some of you have grown up like Paul in church your whole life. Grown up, you know the Bible, you know the routine, you just have never stepped into Christ. Some of you have, didn't grow up in church. You're very far from God. But I want you to know this too. Christ is here for you. You can be positioned in him. And when you put yourself in Christ, just like someone just was buried here in baptism, into Christ. It's like, I want my life to be united with him. So I share in his joy. I share in his power. I share in his victory. That's what he wants for you. Because when that happens, your life gets repurposed.